may find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you if you've got a, a Bible there. Let me pray as we come to God's Word. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Word. Father, thank you that we can learn in it how we might uh, live lives that honour you. So Father, help us uh, this morning. Father, speak to us through your Word that we might be changed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the late 80s, my mum got my family to try some kind of version of market research. It was a programme that sort of let you try products out before they came out into the mass market. We got prototypes of products, and we got to try them out, give our feedback, and they would then change them a little bit before they went into the, the mass market. It was quite exciting getting to shape a product of the future, and we would wait with eager anticipation to see how the final product would be, how similar it would be to the prototype that we tried out. If you've ever had the UK version of Cinnamon Grahams, or Golden Grahams, that was one of ours. Uh, we got to test one of those out. If you ever had them, you know, you're welcome. Uh, it's still very, very nice. But prototypes set out the direction of what is to follow. They're an incomplete, advanced taste of what is to come. And that here is the role of John the Baptist in our passage. An incomplete, advanced taste of what is to come. John here sets up a prototype, a pattern of the kingdom. A pattern that Jesus will follow. A pattern that we will follow, as we'll see uh, later on. So this is not just an interesting bit of historical background. There will be some bit of interesting history as we go through. But this is there to teach us. Just as much as the sermons that we have in Mark's Gospel, it's there for a reason. And it's there for us, the reader. But this whole section on John isn't provoked by something that happens to John but something that happens to Jesus. Last week we saw he'd sent his disciples out on a mission to the villages and the towns of Israel. And Jesus is becoming well known in the area. So much so that he's beginning to get on the radar of some important people. And they're beginning to wonder who exactly this miracle working Galilean is. And so our first point, that's not our first point, our first point is who is this man? Verses 14 to 16. Who is this man? Let me read those to you. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet of old, like the one of the prophets, sorry, a prophet like the ones of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Jesus' disciples have been travelling around various uh, Roman provinces that in the Old Testament would have been described as Israel, or later Israel and Judah. Herod the Great had been king over most of the area, uh, including his native Idumea, which is uh, Edom. He was an Edomite, not a Jew. He was, one, uh, he was the one whom the wise men visited in Jerusalem. He's the one who had the babies of Bethlehem killed. That's Herod the Great. But Herod the Great died, and when he died, the land was split between his surviving children. His surviving children, because actually he had two of his own children put to death. He was not a very nice man. Confusingly, though, some of his kids are also called Herod. You know, like those parents who name their kids, oh, sorry if you've done that, but who uh, <laughs> name their kids after themselves. But we have another Herod, the one in our passage. He's known to history as Herod Antipas, just to sort of make him different. 
His mother was a Samaritan, which made him unpopular. He was half Edomite and half Samaritan. That's not a good recipe for when you're ruling Jewish people. And he was ruler of the area around Galilee, uh, and also an area east of the River Jordan, known as Perea. He is the Herod who will meet uh, with Jesus in Jerusalem during his trial a couple of years after these events. He had a family life that wouldn't be out of place if you were watching something like Jeremy Kyle or Jerry Springer. It's really quite confusing, and we'll, again, we'll come to it a bit later on. But his concern here is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Mark masterfully keeps weaving this question into our story. Who is this man? Who is Jesus really? And Mark tells us some of the opinions of his time. The first is that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Mark will explain why that is, that John is dead in a few moments' time. But it's fairly easy to see why you might think it was John the Baptist. John had called people to repent. It says in the Gospel he preached a baptism of repentance. Jesus was now calling people to repent. And now his disciples were going everywhere calling people to repent. So his message is really similar to John's. Also, John baptised people. That was something new for the, the people of the time. But also, Jesus and his disciples were baptising people. We find that out in John's Gospel. Some of the people who previously been following John are now following Jesus. So you can see why there's a bit of confusion. You might see why he thinks he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. But that is a bit weird, though, to think that, isn't it? To think that this is someone raised from the dead. Mostly because people don't just rise from the dead, do they? The Jews expected a general resurrection of everybody at the end of time. But they didn't really expect mini ones, sort of like early ones. Yes, we've seen it in Mark's Gospel so far. We saw the girl that was raised from the dead. But in the whole of the Old Testament, there are only three occasions when that happens. All within a few years of each other, and all surrounding the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Nothing like this has happened in Israel for 800 years, as far as we know. But so great an impact was Jesus having, that people thought the idea that somebody might have been raised from the dead wasn't so far-fetched. That's the first idea, that it could be John the Baptist. The second idea is that it could be Elijah. And again, it's fairly easy to see why. Elijah did raise the dead, for example. He raised the son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Elijah was able to seemingly miraculously produce bread. Elisha, his successor, was able to control the waters of the River Jordan. Add to that as well, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And the prophet Malachi prophesied that he would return before the end of the world. But Jesus was not Elijah. Makes that clear later. But Mark does want Elijah ringing in our ears as we read the backstory of John the Baptist in a few moments' time. The last option is a prophet that has risen from old Isaiah or maybe Jeremiah or maybe Obadiah. He only wrote a short book, so maybe he had more to say. You know, he would come back and I'll say a bit more. This is only one page long, if you've ever wondered. Makes you wonder, you know, you read it in like 50 seconds, it's really short. Anyway, what nobody is saying here is that this is a normal man. That this is a normal rabbi. Whoever they think he is, they think he is somebody very significant. These people were not stupid. They know that someone who goes around doing the things that Jesus does 
is not just a good teacher. There'll be other options presented to us by Mark, but just another man is not one of them. Herod, for his for what he's worth, thinks that Jesus is John brought back from the dead. And he's terrified at the prospect that this is true. Why? Well, Mark gives us the backstory. So second point, we have the Baptist's beheading backstory. The Baptist's beheading backstory. Let me read to you from verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. Herod had had John put in prison. Now this is no surprise to Mark's readers. It happened way back in chapter 1, Mark 1, 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the God of God. It seems in some way that him being put in prison is the catalyst for Jesus' ministry. As John goes down, Jesus comes up. It turns out that John had been put in prison for calling Herod Antipas to repent of his illegal relationship with his brother's wife. Herod Antipas had been given parts of his father's great kingdom after his death. Though Herod Antipas was never technically a king, that needed a sort of special approval from Rome, he needed to go to Caesar to get that. Instead, he was a tetrarch, which in practice was very similar, but it was a bit less prestigious. He's even called king in our passage because the function was much the same. One of his older brothers, King Herod I, sorry, Herod Philip I, gets complicated, doesn't it? He was disinherited by Herod the Great, and he lived on in Rome. And he, Herod Philip, had married his half-niece, Herodias. Herod the Great had had her father, his own son, put to death. And her half-uncle had married her, and they lived on in Rome. Sorry, on, on my, I didn't originally have family trees upon the screen, but they've not come up this morning, just to give you a bit of an idea. But they had one child called Salome, according to the, the history books that we read. So you've got this guy who's married to his half-niece, and they've got a daughter, Salome. On a trip to Rome, Herod Antipas, the Herod that we've got here, fell in love with Herodias, who's also his half-niece, and they made plans to marry. This was despite the fact that Herodias was already married, as was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had married a princess from the country next door, Nabatea, which is bits of modern-day Syria and Jordan. So Herodias divorced her husband to marry his brother. Herod divorced his princess wife to marry his brother's wife. And it made them a lot of enemies. When it came for the end of Herod Antipas, it was partly because he was invaded. He was invaded by his angry ex-father-in-law. As I said a few weeks ago, it's never a good idea to annoy your father-in-law. My father-in-law watches the live stream. He was so upset that he divorced his daughter that he invaded the country. So all of this, even if you've not followed what's going on, you can work out that it's icky. She was his half-niece, that's who he's married to, and it was also nasty. This was his own brother's wife, and they plotted together to marry. But it was also basically illegal because of the Old Testament. 
In Leviticus 18.16, it says, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonour your brother. Marrying your brother's wife was allowed in the Old Testament. In fact, it was encouraged, but only if your brother had died. And it was for the purposes of continuing your brother's line. The children would not be counted as your own children, they would be counted as your brother's children. But this was something different. His brother was alive and well, and they both left their spouses to do this. Now you might want to argue that it was technically okay because they got a divorce, but technicalities were the domain of the Pharisees, weren't they, in the New Testament, not the sons of the kingdom. That that might easily explain why they team up so easily against Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees in chapters 3 and 12. But John calls him out on this, and Herod is not happy. He has John put in prison, and yet he seems to be fascinated by John. Verse 20, the Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. Hearing John unnerves him, and yet he likes to hear John. There seems to be a begrudging respect for him. Here is a man who does not fear him, but fears God more. Here is a man who is a righteous man, a holy man. He's sure, he's not really sure what he thinks about him and and all that God stuff. That's Herod, but he's not really willing to kill him. He's not going to risk it. Because here's a man of integrity who will speak the truth no matter what the cost. And that is both unnerving and compelling at the same time, isn't it? Someone who will speak the truth, even if it costs them their lives. As we speak the truth of the Bible, that will sometimes have the same effect, won't it? People might not like what we say, but there's sometimes a respect there. Not always, but sometimes. Integrity is incredibly rare in our society. We're far more used to people altering what they say in order to be liked or popular, aren't we? That's the norm. We're used to politicians changing what they say based on opinion polls rather than what they actually believe. But John was not like that. He would not compromise his beliefs based on what other people might think, however powerful those people were. And as we'll see, very unlike Herod, Actually, that, sorry, it makes me wonder whether that actually is something about John that appeals to Herod. Herod knows that he's not like this. Herod is one of those changeable politician people who will just do whatever he can to be liked. But he sees in John something that he wants to be. A man of integrity, rather than a man who fears looking weak. So he called Herod to repent, much in the same way that he called everyone else to repent. That did not make Herod happy, but it certainly intrigued him. Did he not care that he would die for what he said? Herod was not happy, but it seems that Herodias, his new wife, was even less happy. Look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Herodias, his wife, has murderous intent. And I think we're supposed to see in her echoes of Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was the queen of the northern kingdom who dominated her husband Ahab. Jezebel is the one who issues death threats against Elijah in one kings. It's not Ahab that does that, it's Jezebel. It's she who orders the murder of the prophets 
not Ahab, as bad as he was. So here we have a murderous queen after a prophet who dare call them out for their actions. If she is Jezebel, then John is Elijah. It's not Jesus in this passage who is the Elijah to come, it's John. And it fits with his description back in chapter 1 of Mark. It fits with the, the cloak and the belt that Elijah wore. It fits with what Jesus will say in chapter 9, chapter 9 verses 11 to 13. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is, is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Matthew's Gospel helpfully adds the conclusion. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah must turn before the end of the world, says Malachi. Well, John has come, says Jesus. Here is John in the spirit of Elijah, facing the treatment of an Old Testament prophet from a murderous queen and her husband. And John, as has been all the way through, will trailblaze what is to come for Jesus. And so our final point, the prophet with no honour. The prophet with no honour. Have a look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, uh, on, his, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. John is killed in the most humiliating of circumstances. His death comes in the end because of the lust that he has over his possibly or probably teenage daughter and also younger stepdaughter. Uh, possibly younger than teenage, sorry, stepdaughter. This stepdaughter was also his great niece. You see what I mean about Jerry Springer? This couldn't really be on one of those programs. The dance that the girl does is almost certainly erotic. Herod and Herodias were both Romans in culture, both had lived in the capital in Rome. Normally these kind of dances would be done by slaves or prostitutes. But here Herod has his stepdaughter do it as a birthday treat. This man is seriously sick. <coughs> Herod is so overcome by it that he offers his stepdaughter anything she desires. He offers half his kingdom, but that's the sort of set phrase that people would use. King Xerxes offers the same to Queen Esther in the Old Testament. But whereas Esther asks for the life of her people, this stepdaughter asks for the death of John the Baptist. Of course, it's really her mother that's pulling the strings in the background. But the daughter is the one that speaks it. The king has made his oath in front of all sorts of different people. The nobles, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. So there's no going back on this. 
not without losing his whole reputation. He has sworn an oath to give her whatever she wants, and although he feels perplexed, he goes ahead with it rather than lose face in front of his important guests. At her mother's prompting, Herod's daughter asks for John the Baptist's head on a dish, a platter, a plate. Perhaps that's nothing more than just to confirm his death so she can actually see his head. But a human head being brought in on a food platter to a banquet and reeks again of sickness and perversity. As though the head is sort of being served at the banquet, a sort of sick cannibalism joke to end his life. What a great dishonour to the prophet John. What a terrible end for this righteous man. His disciples can't take his whole body, they can only take the rest of his body. Who knows what happens to the head? But this fits with what we saw last week, doesn't it? John, uh, sorry, Jesus coined or quoted a phrase in our passage last week, verse 4. A prophet is not without honour, except in his own country or town. John here follows a long line of prophets killed in his own country by his own authorities. But as John does, he sets the pattern of what is to come. John comes, preaches repentance, is arrested by the authorities, denied a fair trial, and is executed. Jesus comes after John. He also is preaching repentance. And so are his disciples. It begs the question, what will happen to them? John here sets the pattern of what is to come. He sets a prototype of the kingdom. John doesn't go to the cross, but he does go to execution. John was executed by Herod, a second-rate ruler, fearful of looking weak before his dinner guests. Jesus will be executed by Pilate, a second-rate ruler, fearful of looking weak before a crowd. The life of the kingdom you see here, as shown in this prototype, is a kingdom characterised by suffering and injustice in this world, before glory in the next. For believers, it's a life characterised by oppression and persecution. We sang it in so many of our songs, and Steve picked it up uh, through what we were singing. Jesus will later call this on, uh, call this in Mark, taking up our cross. That is what we do. Jesus himself does it, and then we do it. But John, in a sense, is a sort of forerunner, a prototype of this. And this makes it incredibly relevant for us, doesn't it? Because the life of the kingdom is our life too, as followers of Jesus. We too take up the cross. We too follow this pattern of the kingdom that John prefigures and Jesus fulfills. What I mean is that what happens here is in a way a model of what happens for us. We too should expect kickback for speaking the truth, for calling people to repent. That's probably why Mark has put this story here at this point. His disciples are going out to preach repentance, the sentence before this. That's what they do. Well, this is what's in store for them. This is what happens. And it literally was, wasn't it, for the twelve disciples? All of them, bar John the disciple and Judas, were killed for their faith by the authorities. And John didn't get off lightly. He was sent into exile onto a remote island of Turkey. Disciples like the Apostle Paul would be beheaded by crazy kings, like John was. Our taking up a cross cross for ourselves, though, for most of us, it will be metaphorical, won't it? We won't die physically for Christ. But our lives now as Christians will be characterised by suffering, by service, by persecution. 
It will be a life where we're not held in honour, but dishonoured by many. Sorry if that sounds a bit of a downer, but it is true. And it will stop us falling into the trap of thinking that our, if in our lives now we have opposition and suffering, that it means we're doing something wrong. Actually, this is normal for the Christian life. That was the way for John. That was the way for Jesus. And this is the way for us. But, as we said at the beginning, John is a prototype. An incomplete taste of what is to come. Here's what's missing. What comes after the suffering, service and oppression. In the final product, so to speak, at the end of Mark, there is what Herod feared so greatly here. Resurrection. Resurrection to glory. Jesus rises again. He fulfills the pattern and sets that pattern for his disciples so his followers will rise again to glory. And that means that suffering and service and persecution in this life are not the final word. The Apostle Paul, who knew what it was to suffer, wrote to the Christians in Rome, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So we too must walk the path that John walked, the path that Jesus walked, of suffering and service to the truth. But what we must understand too is that that path ultimately leads to glory, a golden future. So let's persevere as John did, as Jesus did. Let's keep speaking the truth of the gospel to whomever God places in our path. And in a life that will will be difficult, let's pray for the strength to deal with those consequences and keep our eyes fixed on the glory days to come. Let's pray. Father God, it's a sobering passage in many ways before us this morning, but Father, thank you that you are with us in the midst of what we go through. Father, thank you that your son was not unaccustomed to suffering. Father, thank you that he trailblazed that path for us. And Father, help us to keep looking for what is coming in the future, the bit that's missing in John's story, the glory that is to come. Father, help us persevere through a life of difficulty knowing that that glory is there, is real. And Father, you've got it prepared for us in heaven. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.